Please take your Bibles with me this evening and turn to Luke 19. Luke 19, continuing in our series in the evening in Luke, we're looking at verses 11 through 27 this evening, title of the message, Diligence. Jesus was in Jericho, in the house of Zacchaeus. He had committed himself, that would be Zacchaeus, had committed himself to the needs of the poor. He vowed to restore fourfold to anyone whom he had extorted through false accusation. A group of people, probably headed by some Pharisees, were upset that Jesus would be in the house of such a man as Zacchaeus. But not only was Jesus there, but his purpose was accomplished. As he declared in verses 9 and 10, this day is salvation come to this house. For so much as he also is a son of Abram, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Salvation had come to the house for the man had exercised faith in the Savior. A lost sheep of the house of Israel had been sought, had been found, and had been saved. Now, remember where our scene left us last time. Jesus was walking through Jericho on the way to Jerusalem. His purpose is set. His direction is clear. We are about to transition into the final days of Jesus' life and ministry on this earth during his first advent. Very soon in our text, we will enter into those final seven days. But he's not yet ascending unto Jerusalem. Presumably then, we would assume at this point that he remains in Jericho for another week. Or perhaps, not another week, but, but uh, um, for, for at least uh, another time. My, my apologies. Uh, and so we pick up in the text, and we pick up in verse 11, and the Bible says this. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh unto Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom should immediately appear. Never lose appreciation when you step into a parable for the introduction verse of the parable. Never lose appreciation for that. Within our context, verse 11 is telling us exactly what we should be looking for in the parable, right? Parables teach one primary lesson and it gives us Jesus' lesson here. It gives us his purpose. It points to Jesus' meaning and as a parable focuses on that one primary point, this introduction is helping us find it. So here's what we learn. First, we find that Jesus is speaking to the same group of people who were grumpy over him being in the house of Zacchaeus. More specifically, the same group of people unto whom he said that he had come to seek and to save that which is lost. We know this because of the indefinite pronoun reference that we find here. As they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. So they that heard these things, they that heard Jesus say that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Second, we know that he is still in the context of coming to seek and to save that which is lost, as the text said that he added this to his statement. So this is in the same conversation, right? It's not just another event that happened in Jericho, but this is the same conversation that we were, we were reading in verses 1 through 10 of Luke 19. Third, we find his motivation to speak. His motivation 
is that because he is nigh into Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of, of God should immediately appear, he is about to give them a parable. They think that the kingdom of God is immediately to appear. He gives them this parable. Now, I, I'm fascinated and, and frankly blessed by this statement. Jesus has spent his ministry specifically the early portion of his ministry, declaring, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was not lying, for indeed God's timetable, we are in the last days, the kingdom is at hand. But the text makes it very clear and ever apparent that the kingdom of God in its fullness, the kingdom of God as far as the physical kingdom on this earth that we read about in Revelation 20, that that kingdom of God was not going to immediately appear, though it was at hand. Now imagine how important this is within the context of Jesus's last days. Jesus is, according to our text, about to ascend unto Jerusalem for the final time. And, and we talked about how Jerusalem is significantly higher than, than Jericho, and he's going to ascend up unto Jerusalem. In fact, before this chapter ends, we're going to read about Jesus's disciples placing him on a donkey, and bringing him down from the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem and proclaiming, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, a messianic proclamation. We'll talk about that, of course, next time we are together. And yet, the physical kingdom of our God was not going to immediately appear, and we know that from passages such as this one, where the, the direct question of, did Jesus bring his kingdom in its fullness the first time is answered for us, that there's still a kingdom that is at hand. And you can imagine then why Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saw fit to place this parable here right before Jesus' triumphal entry, right? So that we would not misunderstand what's about to happen with his triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is not Jesus coming to physically rule and reign. It's not that he will fail at his purpose. The kingdom is yet, in its fullness, a future event. This is also very important commentary on a statement that Jesus made in Luke 17. If you recall back when we studied through it, in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, Bible says when it was demanded and when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Remember that this controversy had kind of come up in Luke 17 with the Pharisees demanding when the kingdom of God should come. And at this time, Jesus diverted the demand for an answer, he diverted their demands of a physical kingdom and called attention to the fact that they probably shouldn't be all that eager for the kingdom to come physically because they weren't prepared for it spiritually. The kingdom of God had to begin within them, and it had not done so in the hearts of the Pharisees. So he diverted their attention from the, the kingdom and messianic arrival unto the physical kingdom to, hey, let's prepare our hearts for that kingdom. The message that goes all the way back to John the Baptist when he was baptizing in the wilderness, baptizing unto repentance, saying that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus then taught about the imminency of his sure return and his second advent, saying when the kingdom does come in its physical form, it's going to come like lightning. 
So you need to prepare your hearts for it now. And we will see some of that clearly taught again here in Luke 19, that before the kingdom will come physically, the king must go away and then must return. And as the king had not yet gone away, the kingdom would not yet come in its fullness. We'll speak more about that in our application time. So we're there in verse 11. So it is that Jesus is going to teach, and, and, and here's where this helps us. He is going to teach within the context of framing these listeners' minds around the idea that the kingdom in its fullness, that second advent kingdom where Jesus will physically rule and reign in righteousness from the throne, was not coming right now. And in light of this reality, what does it mean for them? What does that mean for them if they are going to have to wait for, the, for, for their, their Messiah's return and his second coming? When your whole life points towards a single event which is yet future, what do you do while you're waiting for it? It's a good question, isn't it? We talked about that a little bit this morning, that everything that we have as believers is built on the hope of that which is to come. So what do we do while we're waiting for our Lord to return? So what do we do in the meantime? Well, naturally, we prepare for it, right? If I'm anticipating a vacation, I spend my time packing, making sure I've covered all my bases because once it's time to leave, I'm not turning back. So I make sure that I've turned the water heater down and I make sure the lights are off and I make sure I've unplugged what I need to unplug and I make sure everything is set and I make sure I'm packed because once I'm gone, I'm gone. So Jesus says in verse 12 of Luke 19, he said, therefore, and here, here's where our parable begins. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So immediately we have the context. We have a nobleman. He's leaving his country for a far country, and he is going to go there to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to return. Now, it's important to understand at the outset the concept of the kingdom. And the kingdom is actually a major theme in scriptures. The, the concept of the kingdom, I'll be preaching on it on Sunday morning in I think three weeks, four weeks, um, something to that effect as we prepare ourselves for our time in the mornings in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the concept, let me, I'll, I'll give you a little primer this evening. The concept of kingdom in the teachings of scripture goes well beyond just Jesus ruling and reigning. It is actually, a, a, when we think of the concept of a kingdom, we think of the idea of, of a physical land with sovereignty and boundaries. But the concept of the kingdom comprises several distinct but interrelated concepts as we talk about it in scripture. When we talk about the kingdom, we're speaking of three particular things. We're speaking of the right to rule, a realm over which to rule, and the exercise of that right to rule in that realm of rule. The right to rule speaks of the authority that is vested in a leader to lead. You don't have a kingdom if you have no right to rule. Our president leads by the will of the states, conferred unto him by receiving a majority of the votes in the electoral college. He has a right to lead by virtue of the states electing him into that position. A king leads by the right of bloodlines, oftentimes, as established by a nation's founding charter. And this is what we are considering in our text today. When he goes to receive himself a kingdom, he's actually going to receive 
the authority, the right to rule. We'll talk about that more in a moment. As we also consider the idea of the kingdom, we're considering the realm of rule. There must be a people over which to rule if a person is to have a kingdom. I cannot call myself a king if I have no subjects. What am I a king over? if I have no subjects. I cannot call myself a father if I don't have children because who am I the father of if I have no children, right? I cannot call myself a pastor if I don't have a congregation. Who am I a pastor over? Who am I leading? Who am I shepherding if there's no one to shepherd? To this end, when Jesus tells the Jews that the kingdom of God is near and warns in Matthew 21, 43, that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them as the nation and would be given to another people that bore the fruits of repentance, Jesus was warning them that the realm of the kingdom was going to transition from the nation of Israel to the church because they had rejected the kingdom. They had rejected their birthright. And so the realm would fundamentally shift. Finally, as we consider the kingdom, we consider the idea of the reality of rule. That, that a man who has vested authority over a certain group of people exercises that authority. If you don't exercise the authority, then you, you're not ruling. Is a sovereign that has the right to rule and a realm over which to rule but does not exercise that authority, actually a sovereign. To this end, when Jesus stood before Pilate, though Jesus had claimed to be a king and he had called for subjects, Jesus had committed no trespass against the empire of Rome, specifically because he never sought to exercise the authority over his people or over his realm in the physical sense. He had no kingdom in this world because never once did he attempt to exercise authority over a physical realm or physical people. To that end, he had never sought to claim a kingdom for himself on this earth. One of the most preeminent themes throughout scripture, as I mentioned, is the kingdom. That God created a realm over which to rule. Satan sought to usurp that realm. Satan sought to claim for himself that realm. He sought for the right to rule. However, when he sought to usurp God, he had no realm over which to rule. And so he targeted a certain group of people that would be humanity over whom God had given dominion over his creation and sought to bring humanity under his power, under his dominion. And so for the past 6,000 years of history, there has been an angelic struggle over the kingdom. Satan has claimed the right to rule. He's claimed a realm and is seeking to exercise that claim by calling mankind to finally reject and overthrow God. God has also claimed that right. His realm defected to Satan when Adam and Eve fell to sin. And so he is going about recovering his realm by redeeming it unto himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice on the cross. One day he will assert this right and destroy all those who will not submit to his right to rule. And thus the kingdom will be his forever. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We read in that model prayer. So today 
we are talking about this idea. When we read here that this, this certain nobleman went to a country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return, it seems quite apparent that we're speaking of a man that is leaving to appeal to a higher authority for the right to rule over a realm, over a designated realm. And indeed, this, par this parable has strong historical context in the city of Jericho. Remember, Jesus is in the city of Jericho speaking at this time, and there's a strong historical context that we might lean on that would, would relate to the people as they were listening in that day. When Jesus was a child, you recall, perhaps, Archelaus, the son of Herod, was ruling in Jerusalem. You remember that uh, Joseph took Mary and the, Jesus, the child, and fled to Egypt. And they stayed there until Herod was dead. And after Herod died, they came back into Israel. But the, the Bible says they did not live in Jerusalem because Archelaus ruled in Herod's place. And so they diverted back to where they had lived previously, to Nazareth. Archelaus did exactly this. And Jericho played a bit of a part in the whole story. Herod the Great died in Jericho the Bible tells us, or the, the history tells us, excuse me. Following Herod's death, Archelaus sought to exercise dominion, but the people resisted. The people resisted having him uh, rule over them. So following more conflict, the Bible says Archelaus sailed to Rome to defend his right to rule over Judea before Caesar himself. And his brother... Antipas, as well as many others from the, the region of the Jews, went there to argue against Archelaus' right to rule. After many events, Caesar conferred upon Archelaus the title of ethnarch, and he was given rule over every area where the Jews ethnically lived. Archelaus would later rebuild the royal palace in Jericho so that as Jesus was teaching this parable about a man who left to receive for himself a kingdom, they may have been actually speaking in the shadow of the palace that Archelaus built after having come back from receiving the right to rule from Caesar. So there may have very well been a historical context within which this parable related to the people that lived in the city of Jericho. Archelaus did that. He left to go to Rome and he returned with the right conferred upon him to rule. So it is that this certain nobleman within our parable goes into a far country to receive a kingdom, to receive the right, the authority to rule over a people. Thus we read in verse 13, And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. We're introduced to several more actors here in the parable. First, we're introduced to ten servants of this nobleman. As he's preparing to leave, he confers upon these 10 servants, 10 pounds. Now, uh, the pound was an English currency measure. The Greek speaks of uh, a uh, mira, which is a word used only once in Luke as a designation of currency. Some say that uh, this resource would be approximately about three months salary for a day laborer. But upon what authority they claim that, I, I can't really tell you. Let's say this in simplicity, 
that the nobleman gave them sufficient money with which to fulfill the command that he left them with before he left, right? And that command was this, occupy till I come. That word means stay busy. And the implication of the word, and certainly of the parable, is that these 10 servants are to use these 10 pounds to conduct business while their nobleman was gone. We would assume, though the text again does not explicitly state it, that each servant was given the same amount of money, one pound, and with it they were to do business to increase their master's wealth. So that when he returned with the authority to rule as he anticipated, his realm was stronger than when he left because his servants had been faithful. The next set of actors we find in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. The citizens of this nobleman's realm hated him, the Bible tells us. Now, when we think of citizens hating him, we would immediately assume, well, then this man must be a bad ruler. His citizens hate him. But we need to understand that the mob is not always right in their assessment of someone, are they? We need to look no farther than the very object of this parable, Jesus himself, to understand that the Bible says they hated him without cause. They hated Jesus because he did not meet their, their desires, their expectations, their whims, their, their, their wants. In fact, he brought something so much better than what they had ever imagined, but it wasn't what they wanted, so they hated him. My kids will do this. We'll have a delicious meal that's so much better than what they would normally eat, but because it isn't what they expected or what they wanted from the meal, they'll look at that meal and they'll say, I don't want it, I don't like it. And we'll look at them and say, look, you haven't even tasted it yet. How do you know you don't like it? Well, I just don't like it. Well, why don't they like it? They don't like it because it's not what they wanted. It's not what they expected, but it's actually better. It tastes better. It's, it's a special meal. It's a special night. And we can do this sometimes, can't we? That because something isn't quite what we expect, even if it's better, we don't know that, obviously. We haven't experienced it yet. We just reject it outright. So these citizens hated this nobleman. The Bible doesn't tell us why as far as the parable is concerned. And what they did is they sent a message after him, a delegation perhaps of citizens to the far country, to wherever this nobleman was going to receive this kingdom, to appeal to the higher authority and to tell this higher authority that they did not want this nobleman ruling over them. Their object was to seek to deny this nobleman the right to rule before the higher power. Now, You'll need to tuck these angry citizens away in your memory for a while. We won't see them come up again until the end of this parable in verse 27. Our parable continues in verse 15. The Bible says, And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, so he did receive it, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. So this nobleman returns, and the text tells us that, that he received the kingdom he was seeking. He received the authority to rule. The citizens were unsuccessful in appealing for his rejection. And when he returns, he calls these ten servants unto him, unto whom he had left these resources and commissioned them to occupy till he come. And he calls each servant, and he has each servant individually give an account of how they occupied while he was away, about what they did with the money that he had given them, whether or not through business and diligence they had increased his wealth. The parable only speaks of three of these 10 servants, 
and really only focuses upon the actions of one of them. So we read in verses 16 and 17, Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, uh, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. So one comes having the pound the Lord gave him, and he multiplied it into 10 pounds, 10 times that which his Lord had given him. The nobleman, who is now a king, he has the right to rule, commends his servant for his faithfulness. And because he was faithful over the little that the nobleman had given him while he was away, now that that nobleman had returned as a king, with all the authority which accompanies it, this man was given the authority by the king to rule over 10 cities in the kingdom. He was faithful in the little that the nobleman gave, even though he had no assurances that the nobleman would come back having received the kingdom, and the king now gave him much. And it's important to understand that. These citizens went to seek to deny this king the kingdom. The only assurances that these servants had that this man would come back a king and thus be able to reward their faithfulness was his word, was his intention was their understanding, perhaps, of the higher power that they went to a, a appeal to, the higher authority. The same thing happens with the, the second servant. We read in verses 18 and 19. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. So the second comes, and he made five times the amount, right? He multiplied the one pound into five pounds. And the Lord likewise rewarded him bounteously with authority over five cities. This is a bounteous reward. Uh, a city would be a bounteous reward, right? So we're not saying, oh, well, he was not pleased with this one. He is pleased with this servant as well. And he gave him a great reward for his faithfulness. These verses pass quite quickly, but don't lose sight here. If this amount is actually something akin to three months' wages that they... That they used and traded with. The greatest among them multiplied that to 30 months of wages, right? Three months wages times 10 pounds. The greatest of these servants that multiplied the one into 10 multiplied three months of wages into 30 months of wages. Now that's, that's a tremendous multiplication, but that utterly uh, pales in comparison to the amount of wealth that one would receive by inheriting full cities over which to rule, right? 30 months is nothing compared to becoming the governor over several cities and the wealth that would come from that. So they received a major upgrade here by getting 10 cities, by getting five cities. We are, however, then introduced to a third servant. Verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have lay, kept laid up in a napkin, for I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up that thou layest not down, and reapest that thou didst not sow. As we consider this third servant, we might also and perhaps rightly recognize each of these servants to be representative of a group of people. In other words, there were perhaps several of the ten servants who multiplied their one pound into ten pounds or five pounds. And while we considered but one of them, 
That one is representative of a subset of the noblemen's servants who poured their whole heart into the commission that the Lord gave them. Maybe they only got eight pounds or nine pounds, but they poured everything that they had into what the Lord had given them, and they multiplied greatly. Likewise, there's one who multiplied one pound into five pounds, and we might recognize here him being representative of a subset of the noblemen's servants who balanced their Lord's priorities with their own, and so they brought forth respectfully, but perhaps not as bountifully. In this case, this final servant who had nothing to show for his efforts, we might understand them to have re represented a subset of these servants also. And what we find is this, that the servant did not trade, he did not do business with the money, he did not occupy as the Lord had called him to do. The nobleman gave him a pound, he kept that pound safe, and he returned the exact same amount that was given to him when the nobleman returned a king. In other words, the third man failed at his task. And he knows he failed at his task. But rather than simply and humbly admit that he was wrong, he lays the blame, in a manner of speaking, upon the nobleman, now king, himself. He tells the king that he knew the king was an austere man. The word austere means severe, harsh, rigid, stern. He perceives the nobleman to be a man who asks for much, but gives little in return. He is driven to serve his master, not by love, but only by fear of consequences. To that end, he had no drive to do well. He said, I assumed that when you came back and I gave you whatever I occupied, uh, that I gave you the fruit of my efforts, that you weren't going to give me much for, for my efforts. So I didn't even try because I, I just didn't believe that you were going to give me much because you're an austere man. You're a hard man. So I assumed, I gambled, and just assumed that if I spend my time on my own priorities and ignore your priorities, that I'm not going to be out too much from it. That's what the servant is saying here. He, he gambled that he wasn't going to really receive much, that there wasn't much of a reward for his efforts. So he had no drive to do well. He didn't care to increase his Lord's wealth, but only rather made sure he didn't lose anything that his master had given to him. He just keeps it. He keeps it. I can give back what the master gave to me, and that'll be enough. And he accuses his Lord of being harsh, that the nobleman went away and asked a very great thing of his servants, that they would devote themselves unto his success while he was gone, but that these servants, not knowing when his Lord would return or what his Lord would give them when he returned, the, he, this, this one servant at least, believed with all of his heart or invested in the idea that he would not get much in return, that the Lord would be austere. He respected his master. He didn't squander the pound, but he didn't have the faith or love to actually put himself out for his master, to inconvenience himself for his master, to risk anything for his master, or to bother with his master's goods. So he didn't do anything. No loss, no gain. He just existed and returned unto the Lord the gift that the Lord had given to him many years previously. Notice the Lord's response. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up that which I laid not down, reaping that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank? that at my coming I might have uh, required my own with usury. The master tells the servant that he will judge the servant according to the servant's own perception of him. You perceive me as harsh, then I will judge you harshly. And this is interesting. 
We know from the master's response to the other two servants that he was a generous man, wasn't he? That he rewarded those who loved him and obeyed him very generously, in fact. But to this servant, if we may put it this way, his perception of his master became a self-fulfilling prophecy. His master treated him according to his perception of him. Because he had done wrong by his master, based upon his perception of his master's harshness and ungraciousness, he gives cause to the master to act toward him as he perceived him to be. So the master is not actually saying, yes, I'm a harsh man here, but rather, more or less, the master asks the servant, if you truly believe that I was the kind of man that you say I am, why not at least try to avoid my wrath by some measure of obedience? If you actually perceived me to be a harsh, austere man, wouldn't you at least put in enough effort to take that pound, put it in the bank so it can earn interest while I'm gone? And then when I get back, say, oh, okay, I'm going to pull it out of the bank. And then at least you get the interest from the bank. I didn't, you, didn't, you don't even have to work for that, right? You just have to put it in the bank and it'll gain at least a little interest. So the Lord calls him a wicked servant. The servant has falsely labeled this nobleman and acted against the nobleman based upon his false perception of him. And because of it, he receives the severity that he feared. The master then continues in verses 24 and 25. And he said unto them that stood by, this is still in the parable, right? This is not Jesus speaking to the people. This is the nobleman speaking to his servants. Take from him the pound and give it to him that hath 10 pounds. And they say unto him, Lord, he hath 10 pounds. He commands the pound that the servant returned to his master to be given to the most diligent among them, increasing the reward even more to the one who had most faithfully devoted himself to his master. And indeed, this is the prerogative of the man who has authority, right? To mete out rewards as he sees fit. None of them deserve a reward. They're not entitled to a reward. The reward is little more than the extension of the generosity of their master. In fact, they weren't even entitled to the first pound. So the master has every right to do with those things what he sees fit. But the servants almost seem taken aback by this. Lord, that man already has 10 pounds. But the Lord is bountiful and he greatly rewards those that love and serve him. And the Lord continues with a twofold standard of judgment. One standard for those who are his servants and one standard for the citizens of the country that had rejected the rule over him. This servant is called a wicked servant. And yet, at the same time, he is still a servant of the master, isn't he? And so we see a twofold judgment in verses 26 and 27. For I say unto you, that unto every one which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Here's the king's economy. This is how the kingdom worked. In regard to the servants, the servant who multiplied what his Lord gave him, to him was given much. Great rewards. To the servant who refused, who sat on his hands and said, I'm just going to be a lump while my master's gone, sit on the couch and eat potato chips. To that servant, he says, take away everything, every reward, and give it to the ones, everything that I gave him to invest, take it away and give it to the ones who multiplied, who served me. In regard to his enemies, though, there's a whole different standard of judgment, isn't there? 
The, the servant who was not faithful suffers loss on the day of judgment. The citizen who rejected the king is destroyed in judgment. They will be destroyed for their rejection of the king's authority. So ends the parable. Without further comment by Jesus, by the way. Jesus does not explain this one anymore, but that's okay because we had that lovely introduction at the beginning that helps us understand the point, right? So let's review that point again. Verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They were coming to Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen and they thought the kingdom should immediately appear. So remember, a parable always has one primary point. In this parable, we've got a great deal of supporting doctrine, right? We've got a lot of supporting interesting stuff. But the point is this. The kingdom is not yet ready to appear. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Because the kingdom is not going to come when I go down the hill on that donkey in a couple of days. The kingdom's not yet coming. What does that mean for you? That's the point of the parable. That's what we should be looking for. And that's the primary thing that we're drawing out. And so that's what we're going to speak to primarily in our application today as well. Several application points from our sermon this evening. Point number one, the kingdom of God is a yet future event. That's made very clear here. We mentioned this already as it related to Jesus' words in Luke 17, 21, that the kingdom of God is within you, that the nature of the kingdom demands a loyalty within before it can ever become a loyalty without, that the kingdom will not come with observation, but it will come in the blink of an eye, a warning of suddenness, which when we have considered any uh, number of times in the, in the book of Luke already, we recognize that the kingdom is not going to be a slow creep. It's going to be something that is unexpected. And when, when the kingdom arrives, when the second coming of our Lord comes, it will be quick, immediate. But there are those who, due to simple verses such as that, the kingdom of God is within you, are convinced that there is no physical kingdom coming. They're convinced that the kingdom only exists in the hearts of Christ's followers, that we are already living out the kingdom in our hearts, that that is the extent of the kingdom of God. And then that kingdom will be realized fully in heaven after death, that literally we are living out the kingdom now in Christ. But this defies the simple and clear promises of the Bible in the Old Testament in regard to the kingdom. What the kingdom, what, what the Bible promises about Jesus ruling and reigning in righteousness on the throne in Jerusalem. It defies the most straightforward teaching of the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, as we'll talk about in our Sunday morning series, as it relates to the millennial reign of Jesus. And it also defies passages such as this one, where Jesus explicitly states that the kingdom has not yet come. And within this teaching, Jesus does not tear down the impression of his followers that the kingdom would come. And we know that this is their impression because next week as we study, they lay their palms down in front of him in their garments as he comes down on the donkey. They believe the kingdom is coming. They believe there will be a physical kingdom. And he never once looks at them and says, get that physical kingdom stuff out of your mind because it's not happening. He never once says that. He lets them maintain that impression because it is going to come. He's simply telling them, it's not coming yet, so be prepared to occupy until I come. Jesus' statements in Acts chapter 1, 
confirmed this as well. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, the Bible says, this is after Jesus' death, his resurrection. He's been teaching them. He's about to ascend into heaven. The Bible says, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're asking about a physical kingdom here. That is what they're asking for. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. We've talked about this before. They asked Jesus if the kingdom would be restored, and he doesn't say, don't you remember the kingdom of God is within you? He doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even speaking to his disciples when he said the kingdom of God is within you. He was speaking to the unbelieving Pharisees, those that were demanding of him answers. And we mentioned that when we were in Luke 17. He doesn't say the kingdom of God is now because I've died and risen again. Instead, he says, it isn't for you to know the time or the season. Just get busy. It's the same thing that he's saying in the parable, is it not? Occupy till I come. Get busy. You've got work to do while you're waiting. You don't know when I'm coming back. The Father knows when I'm coming back. So just get busy. And what that means is that we are in the time period where the nobleman has gone to receive for himself a kingdom and we're awaiting his return. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you are a servant who's been given an investment with which to do something with on this earth. And that brings us to our second point. Let me ask you a question. Are you a servant or are you one of the dis disgruntled citizens? Are you a servant or a disgruntled citizen? We'll talk about the type of servants in our next point, but for this point, the question is, are you even one of the servants? Or are you the disgruntled citizen that is seeking to deny the Lord his kingdom? You think that you ought to be on the throne of your own heart. You want uh, something else to be the authority over you. You have not submitted yourself to the authority of the nobleman. And the question that I'm asking here is, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Are you a believer? The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 4, ver uh, second half of verse 10 to verse 12, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Every man will give account. The king is coming back. And when he comes back, we're either a servant or we're a disgruntled citizen. There's no in between. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, which says, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. The clearest passage that shows the reality of our Lord leaving to receive for himself a kingdom, however, is an account in Philippians chapter 2. You are perhaps familiar with the account exhorting us to assume the mind of Christ. I'm going to jump into context for the sake of brevity this evening. Speaking of Christ, J Paul writes this in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, here's the thing. Once Jesus receives his kingdom and returns, every knee will bow to him on that day. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Even the disgruntled citizens will bow on that day. But on that day, the servants will receive their rewards or suffer loss. The disgruntled citizens will be destroyed. That's the difference on that day. So what makes you a citizen? Faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. John 3, 16 through 18, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. What separates the lost from the saved is whether or not you have placed your full faith and trust in Jesus' finished work to save you from your sins. It is not duty. It is not works. It is not efforts. That will separate the servant from the servant. That will separate the 10 pounds from the five pounds from the one who suffers complete loss at the throne. He'll have his pound taken away and given to the one that has 10 pounds. That is his faithfulness. That is his occupation. What separates, however, the servant from the citizen? What separates the one who is a servant from the one who has the death sentence? It's the disposition of our hearts towards Christ. Have you accepted his authority, his kingdom rule over you? Or have you rejected his authority, his kingdom rule over you? Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 describes it as repentance from dead works and faith towards God. A full trust in my heart that the one who has gone away is the authority, that he died on the cross for my sins, that I can't get myself to heaven, that there's nothing I can do to get myself to heaven, that Jesus Christ has done all the work for me, and that I believe that that one who died on the cross is the king, that he rose again the third day, that he's alive, that he's gone to receive himself a kingdom, and that he's coming back for his own. Amen. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you a servant or are you a disgruntled citizen? Either way, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. But for the one, they'll enter into that kingdom. For the other, they will be destroyed. Well, that leaves us. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you haven't, if you're a disgruntled citizen, would you become a servant this evening? If you are a servant already, which is the majority in here, at least this evening, let me ask you a question. What manner of servant are you? When the Lord returns, having received for himself a kingdom, what will be the disposition of your heart toward him? What will be the manner of his return for you. We've considered three types today. First, we've considered the zealous and faithful servant. It's interesting, all three of these servants were given the same thing with which to invest, weren't they? They were given the same amount with which to invest. The first 
servant invested with zeal and determination. His heart was fully invested in the work of his master. His duty was deeply rooted in his master's call. He weighed his success upon the degree to which he could make his master successful. The work of the master was his work. He was zealous. He was faithful. The man th therefore was rewarded beyond measure for his faithfulness. He received manifold whatever it was that he sacrificed while his master was away for his zeal for his master and his love for his master. Look, we've mentioned it so many times in the book of Luke, so much so that I'm convinced that if I pre ever preach Luke again, it's going to become a primary theme. And one of the primary themes, I believe, of the book of Luke is this idea that there are rewards coming. And oftentimes as believers, we get so caught up on whether we're in or whether we're out that we forget about the reality of the rewards and just how big of a deal that will be on that day. So we live for ourselves because we are like the servant who says, I know you're an austere man. And so I just didn't, I, I, I didn't even think that you were going to reward me much. So I didn't put much effort into it. Oh, Christian, on that day, on that day. I cannot see, we, 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 will, we just cannot comprehend what God hath prepared for those that love him, what God hath prepared for us. The first master, or the first servant, was faithful. Bringing this to us, this is the believer who, upon placing his faith in Christ, pours his life into serving Christ with all of his heart. Winning souls, discipling souls, serving in word, serving in deed, raising the next generation as under the Lord, serving silently in the background. The point is not what you're doing exactly as to whether or not your heart is invested in this true service unto the Lord. The zealous and faithful servant sees Christ's mission as his mission, sees Christ's commission as his life. Christ's teaching are the essence of why he gets up in the morning. He sees all things this earth might offer as absolutely nothing compared to what will happen on the day when his Lord returns. Everything that, that the world might have that could distract him from investing what his master had given to him is not worth it because he believes with all of his heart that when his master returns, there will be tremendous rewards. That's this servant. To this zealous servant... Christ's commission are not just what we do. It's what we are. It's the fiber of our being. It's not just a part of life. It's life itself. The heart of this servant echoes Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. My question is, is that you today? Are you this kind of a servant to the master today? And may I just say it this way? This should be every one of us. I don't know what this means to you, for you. I'm not telling you that you need to do more fill in the blank. I'm not telling you what it means to be this kind of a servant this evening. That's you and the Holy Spirit and getting down on your knees in prayer and saying, God, I want to be the servant. What do you want me to do? But is this where your heart lies this evening? And remember what we considered last time in Luke. Faith always anticipates works. 
by the very nature of you having accepted Christ as your Savior, by you entering into faith, faith anticipates that you're going to do the work. It expects it. Faith without works is dead, being alone, James tells us. Faith expects you to work. Do your works reflect the faith that is sold out to the knowledge of Christ? The second one, respectable and faithful. The second servant invested as well, not zealously, but respectably. He labored, he gave himself to his master's cause, he multiplied his master's investment admirably. He too loved his master, he sought his reward and the pleasures and prospects of his master's success, and he too was rewarded greatly, though in no manner like the rewards of the zealous and faithful servant. This is the believer who is busy, but only to the extent that Christ kind of fits into their day. We are each of this servant to whichever extent we allow the cares and priorities of this world to override the cares and priorities of the next. I'm not talking about actually having a life. That's fine. It's fine to have a life. But when it comes to, am I going to do my thing or God's thing? When we say, I'm going to do my thing instead, but I oftentimes will choose God's thing as well, that's this servant. The master does not in any manner rebuke this servant. Did you notice that? He said well to this servant also. This servant is still a faithful servant unto whom the Lord gives great rewards. But while on the day of judgment, this servant will not necessarily hear the rebuke out of the mouth of his Lord. In my own mind, I know that I will be standing there looking at the rewards of those who gave all and will inherit uncomprehendable rewards and glory. And I will look at that and I will say, why didn't I do more? And this isn't a guilt thing. This is a reward thing. How much do you long for those rewards? How much do you truly believe that when the master comes back, he's going to pour those rewards on us? That's the question. Well, there is a third servant. He's still a servant. He's not destroyed with the disgruntled citizens, according to the parable. This third servant, however, was wicked. He saw his master as harsh and unpleasant. He did not believe that his master would actually generously give back to him. So he kept his pound and simply gave it back. Lord, what you gave me, I give back to you. Lord, if I may translate this, Lord, you saved me and I didn't do anything with it. I didn't go out and tell. I didn't live it. I hid my light under a bushel, but I'm giving back to you the light that I was given. I, I, I'm, I'm in the faith at least. This servant fundamentally understands his master's intentions and fundamentally misunderstands his, his master's character. And there are many believers in this boat, aren't there? Maybe even some among us this evening. These believers don't really see grace as grace. They see a relationship with Christ perhaps as a set of rules. They're driven by guilt. They spend their whole life so consumed, not just with uh, with uh, the things of their life, but they, they spend their life consumed with not making God angry at them, right? They see God as an austere man, a harsh taskmaster. And so everything is just driven by guilt. The only thing, the only thing that can get them up to do anything is, what, is, is if they fear a lightning bolt's going to come down from heaven and strike them. Everything that they do is driven by the hope that the angry God they perceive will just let them into heaven. As long as they can get in, that's enough. But until that, they spend their life wrestling with God between what they want to do and what they perceive God wants them to do. To this believer, the Christian life is a chore. It's full of obligations and expectations without any expectation of reward. 
This servant sees no reward. He says, I give to God and God doesn't give back to me because they don't have money in the bank, because they don't have all the things they want when they fail to understand that the rewards that the Lord gives for faithfulness are coming with him when he comes. But they don't believe it. They believe their God to be an austere man. The servant is by no means destroyed with the disgruntled citizens. He is a servant, but his reward is taken away. And on that day, he will realize just how wrongly he considered his master. Just how very good and loving and gracious his master actually was that he derided as being austere. And just how deeply flawed his understanding of God's characters and intentions were toward him. And he will suffer loss and he will weep and his reward will be given to another, yet he will be saved so as by fire. I don't know how many times I've taken you to 1 Corinthians 3 over the past few months to talk to you about the rewards and loss at the throne of judgment. I'm not going to take you there again because I've gone there a multitude of times over the past many months. But know this, setting the unbeliever aside, the disgruntled citizen, who will spend eternity separated from the love of God in eternal flames. Among believers, there is coming a day when your works will be judged. What will you hear on that day? How do you see God? How do you serve God? Is he an austere man? Is his burden heavy upon you? Is serving the master in his absence a daily struggle and toil for you where you feel as though your life is spent in a wrestling match between you and God, where God's demanding things that you don't want to give and every once in a while you say, okay, fine, God, you can have that, but I'm keeping this for me. Trying to get what you want to do between what you perceive God makes you do. This is not the design of the Christian life. And if that's the way you see God, you're, you're misseeing him. He's coming back for his own and his rewards are with him and he desires you to be faithful so that he can pour upon you his abundant blessings. And it'll be worth it on that day. As we close today, let's end with the point of the parable. The lesson which Jesus intends us to draw, let's bring it back to this point. Christ's kingdom will come and his rewards are with him. This is the point. Jesus was about to ascend from Jericho unto Jerusalem. The people wanted the kingdom immediately. That wasn't going to happen. And just because it wouldn't happen yet doesn't mean it won't happen. And people need to be ready for it. In Revelation 22, verse 12, some of the final words in our Bible, Jesus says this, and this is the verse we'll close on. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. He is coming. As surely as anything, our Lord is coming. And as surely as anything, when he comes, he's bringing his rewards with him. Look, this life is not just about whether you're a servant or whether you're a disgruntled citizen. What manner of servant are you for the master? Master.